We're now going to have our Bible reading. We'll be in 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 to 24. For this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and who murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates a brother or a sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for other brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions in truth. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. And this is his command, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. The one who keeps God's commands lives in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. Thank you so much, Terry. Well, morning, everybody. Great to see you. Um, do keep your Bibles open. We're going to be referring to this passage throughout. It's a great passage, a challenging one as well. Okay, well, I'm sure that most of us in this room have had the experience of moving house. I, think, I imagine everyone has probably moved house in this room um, at some point. Some of us have done it a few more times than others have. But I want you to think back to the experience of when you have moved house, particularly the experience of moving into a new home, a new house. You know that moment when you get the keys and you open the door and you go in through the front door. And, and what you do is you open that front door for the first time and you're greeted by a shell, really, of a place. It's empty, barren almost. You have nothing on the walls. You've got no furniture. It's sparse. It might even have that chill, you know, when you've been in a house that hasn't had any people in it for a while and it just feels like cold and it, it needs people in it. But then you move your stuff into the house and you bring in your boxes and you bring in your furniture. And on the moving day itself, there's only a limited amount of things you can get done on that day. So sometimes your main priority is to get everything off the van and in the house and to put up your bed. That's the kind of key priority for the day, because then you can at least go to sleep that night, and then the next morning you wake up and you can carry on with the process of, of um, moving in. And then over time, it, it's a process, isn't it? And some people do this quickly, and some people um, take a little bit longer, but it's getting all of your stuff out of the boxes into your home, choosing where the furniture goes. Oh, we'll have the TV over here and the dining room table in this place we're putting up our pictures on the walls. We sort of find a particular space where one of our paintings can go or this poster can go up here. 
And bit by bit, over time, we make our mark on a place. It becomes more comfortable to us. We feel more safe there. It feels more like home. And that is the process of turning a house into a home. And you can have the house without it feeling like home. You can be in the structures. You can be within a four walls and two, two up, two down kind of terrace or whatever you've got. You can have the house, but it can take a while until it feels like the home. And I think that community is a little bit similar to that. You know, you can structurally be in a community, a gathering of people who meet up regularly and see each other, and yet it not really feel homely, and not, not feel like deep community. And so for us at Grace Church, we're trying to build a community by God's grace. But how do we ensure that it's not just like a house, but it's more like a home? It's not just got the structures. We can all meet and gather once or twice a week. But how do we make it feel like a home? And that's what John is speaking about in this passage. And he would say that the stakes for us getting this right are actually quite high. He's writing a letter to groups of churches, partly to help them know what are the signs of being a healthy Christian. How do we know that we genuinely belong to God as his children? And he's mentioned in previous passages about us having the right beliefs. We need to believe the right things about who God is, who Christ is. But we also saw last week it's about us having the right behavior. How we behave is crucial. God's children act like their father. And in this passage, John makes it clear that this behavior is shown in our interpersonal relationships. How do I relate to you? And how do you relate to me? In simple terms, verse 11, look down. We are to love one another. And the way we love each other shows that we truly are followers of the Lord Jesus. And in this passage, John shows us through both negative and positive examples how we can love each other better and how that in turn will give us confidence, confidence that we really are God's people. So we're going to learn what John has to teach us this morning. How do we turn the proverbial house into a home? Well, the first point that John tells us is this, verse 11 to 15. Do not be like Cain. Do not, don't be like Cain. So John gives us a negative example of Cain. It says, verse 12, do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. Now, Cain was part of the first community, you could say, he and his brother Abel were sons of Adam and Eve. They were the first family, the first community. And God calls them both in Genesis 4, if you read the story, to both um, Cain and his brother Abel to give God a sacrifice, a sacrifice of um, their goods, whether that is the fruit of the ground or the animals that they have. They're both to give a sacrifice. And Abel presents his sacrifice to God, and he is accepted but when Cain presents his, it is rejected by God. And we're not actually told precisely why this is the case. 
in Genesis 4, but we can infer from other scriptures that in some way Abel presented his sacrifice with a level of obedience and trust, and Cain did not. What happens when Cain sees that his sacrifice is not accepted? He becomes angry. It actually eats him up inside. And God comes to him in this state like a gentle father, and he warns him. He says, Cain, do you not know that if you do what is right, you'll be accepted? But you've got to be careful. He says, sin is crouching at your door, and its desire is for you. In other words, Cain, there's something dark in your heart, and if, you don't, if you're not careful, if you don't deal with it, it will swallow you up entirely. That's the warning that God gives to Cain. But Cain doesn't take that warning on board. That anger in his heart does swallow him up. And later he leads his brother Abel out into an open field where they're alone and isolated. And he kills him in cold blood. It's premeditated, it's devious. And Cain becomes the first human murderer. Now, John draws on this story in the passage we've just read, and he says that we must not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one. Now, if you were here last week, you'll remember that we were talking about children of God and children of the devil. And children of the devil are not, you know, people who like listening to black metal. Um, They are those who are lawless, those who reject God's law and rebel against his rule. And John says that Cain was essentially a child of the devil. He belonged to the evil one. And you can see in verse 10 that one of the ways you you can tell um, those who are children of the devil is that they don't love other people. And Cain fits into that profile. John asks, why did Cain murder Abel? Was it because of jealousy? Was it because of pride? Maybe Abel's sacrifice won him the approval that Cain wanted. Who knows? But John's answer is quite striking. Do you notice what it says? Cain murdered Abel because his actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. In other words, there's, just, there's a, a fundamental hostility between those who are good and those who are wicked in the Bible's eyes. And there's something about good actions that expose those who are evil, those who are children of the devil, and they can't stand it. And so Abel's sacrifice in some way revealed Cain for who he was. He hated it, he hated his brother, so he killed him. Now as an aside, look at verse 13. John says to these Christians, don't be surprised, my brothers or sisters, if the world hates you. In other words, for us as Christians, if we seek to live a life honoring to God, we should expect some opposition. We shouldn't be caught off guard by the fact that others do not like us. Now, to be fair, sometimes the church takes heat because we deserve it. And we do things we shouldn't have done. And we've dishonored God. We've not loved him or our neighbor. And those outside the church pick up on that and criticize us for it, rightly. But there are many cases where we are hated not because it's our fault, but simply because we seek to honor God in a world that doesn't. 
So we shouldn't be surprised. But that's not really what John wants to talk about primarily. The real reason for raising the issue of Cain is to do with the dynamics within the Christian community between Christians. Verse 15 puts it strikingly. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. John's point is that if we as Christians hate each other, that hatred is on the same spectrum as murder. And that's just what Jesus said himself in Matthew 5, verse 21. You've heard it said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Hatred and murder are not worlds apart. Cain could only murder Abel because he hated him first. Murder is the extinguishing of another's life. And when we hate somebody, we are already taking their life away, but in our own hearts and heads. And in some ways, there are aspects of hatred that permeate our culture. You see the level of political discourse, online conversations about contentious issues, insults, labeling, sneering. I think this fits in the category of hatred. But John's biggest concern is that hatred does not occur in the church between between Christians. But does that happen? Are there instances of hatred in the church between Christians? Well, there can be. There can be. We can hold grudges and grievances against others. Sometimes because their success, their godliness, their giftedness, it exposes us in some way. It makes us feel insecure. Or sometimes people in the church hurt us and cause us harm. And how do we respond? Well, here are some of the hallmarks of a hateful response. We bear resentment. We secretly hope they fail. We joke or gossip about them to others. We place scenarios in our heads where we argue with them and win the argument. We refuse to forgive them and seek their good. Or we simply ignore their existence. We ghost them. We act like they're not alive. And we can justify ourselves for doing this. They hurt me. What they've done is wrong. Nevertheless, this is hateful behavior. And more than that, John would say that this is murder. It's murder. Now, to to bear hateful thoughts about another person... Obviously, it's not as serious as actually taking their life. But it does have its own peculiar and specific darkness. Think about it this way. I can only murder someone once. But if I hate someone, I can murder them in my heart every day. It's continuous. 
And so every time we do this and we bear hateful thoughts towards others, it's as if we resurrect them every time just to kill them again. But you might not ever see it because it all happens inside. Now to do this to anybody is unacceptable. For a Christian to do it to another Christian is an outrage. And so, here's a question to us this morning. Friends, did you come into church with blood on your hands? And is there business you need to do with God? John does not play around. Look at verse 14. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Verse 15. You know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. Again, The stakes are high. Now, many of us struggle with bitterness and resentment. But we must not let it fester. We cannot do so. If we let hatred in our hearts blossom and bloom, we are in grave spiritual danger. That is what John would say. And some of us have been deeply hurt by other persons, other people, in the church, grievously, and wrestling Negative thoughts in our minds, fighting that, is, it's, it's a battle, it takes time. And if we are fighting it, the Lord gives us help by his Holy Spirit, he's gracious. But we must not allow hatred of another Christian to take foothold in our lives. We cannot do so. If we do, it will lead to our own death, not to life. And so John's call to us is this, do not be like Cain. That is a simple, obvious step to ensuring that we have a good community. There's not hatred here. Secondly, be like Christ. So we are to love one another, but how do we know what that looks like? Well, John tells us, verse 16, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. The meaning of that, the depth of that, only becomes apparent when you consider what Jesus' relationship to life is. He is life. John has said this himself, in him was life. There's this wonderful phrase in Acts 3, it describes Jesus as the author of life. It's as if, you know, he's got a pen and he's writing into existence all the things that make life rich and beautiful. And because he is the creator, everything in creation points to the life that is found in Jesus because he made it all. You know, some of us love the arts, things like film and music and textiles. And in each of these media, we, we see sights, we hear sounds that are beautiful. They move us. They capture our imagination. And they are in themselves echoes of the beauty that is found in Jesus Christ himself. Good food, it contains texture, doesn't it, and taste. But it also satisfies us, it, it fills us. Again, a picture of who Christ is. The Lord is good. We're told to taste and see that he's good. 
All things in creation, they point us to Jesus. So on my days off, I like to go, one of the things I like to do is a little ritual, is I go for a run and I listen to a podcast. That's, that's kind of peak jazz time off, right? That's like me in my happy place. And I run around Manchester and I take in the parks that, are, that I run past and the, uh, the architecture of the city and the people bustling around. And it's a picture of beauty. I enjoy it. I feel enlivened being there. I get to exercise my body, which is a gift from God. And the enjoyment of all those things, they, they point to life in Christ, the beauty that comes from him. Do you see what I'm saying? Whatever we enjoy in life, it points to his author. Jesus is life. He is life. How can the author of life die? It seems nonsensical to say. The one who gives every good thing, who is a fountain of life, to die. And yet, we are told that he gave his life. He gave it willingly. It was not taken from him against his, you know, without his consent in that sense. He laid it down purposefully. You know, as he was being beaten and whipped, that torture could only continue because Jesus allowed it to. He even says to Pontius Pilate, who has put him under trial in Matthew 26, don't you think that I could call on my father to send more than 12 legions of angels to help me now? At no point was Jesus not in control, but he gave purposefully his life. He was never trapped. Through every stab of pain on the cross, he could think to himself, I have chosen to do this, and I will continue to do this so that I can save my people. This is love. And without it, we would have no hope at all. No hope. You see, Jesus is not like Cain. Cain took the life of another. Jesus gives his life for others. And this is the definition of love. John says that Jesus should be our model. Sacrificial self-giving. That's what a Christian community should be like. Um, Frank, if you just want to put up the next slide. Here's um, a vision statement that we've been working on as elders for the church. So Grace Church aims to be a nurturing and engaging community growing servant-hearted people and bringing Jesus' saving love to our city and beyond. And community is one of those buzzwords we throw it around. We've thrown it around a lot at Grace Church. And it does represent something of what we are trying to be at this church. A nurturing church, an engaging community. It's a key part of how we see ourselves. But if we do not lay our lives down for each other, like Christ has done for us, This vision will not be worth the paper it's written on. Because real community, homely community, only happens as we sacrifice ourselves for each other, as Christ has done for us. A danger of our individualistic age is that we want community on our own terms. We sort of think, I'll dip into community when I need a top-up for whatever it gives me. But if something else comes up and it becomes inconvenient, Maybe I'll put it down for a bit. The the danger with that is that 
We do not become contributors to community. We become consumers. And church becomes like a product. So how do we know that we are not just consumers of church and of community? John says that true Christian community involves us laying down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Laying down our lives. We're used to thinking about laying down our lives in other contexts. Romantic relationships, for example. Ephesians 5 talks about husbands laying down their lives for their wives. And all the wives are like, amen! We think about laying down our lives for our children. We have to be sacrificial for them, don't we? Particularly when they're young. Most of us understand that there is a connection, a bond of obligation to those we love in our family. Even if we struggle to put it into practice. But did you know we have a bond of obligation as Christians to each other in the church? John can even say that we are called to lay our lives down for each other. I am not connected just to my wife, Hannah. To the regulars of this church, I am connected to you as well. There are bonds of obligation. Just imagine that this room, there are thin strands that are connecting each and every one of us. It's like a spider's web of connections. And those strands, they represent the fact that we, in some sense, belong to each other. And we love each other and we're obligated to each other. That is the picture that John paints in this passage. We are to lay our lives down for our brothers and sisters in the church. I'm to lay my life down, not just for Hannah, but to those in my life group, to those in my student group, to those I worship with on a Sunday morning. And that will look different because relationships are different, but the bonds are still there. And the same is true of those of you that would call Grace Church your home. We are called to inconvenience ourselves for the sake of our brothers and sisters. And John gives a practical example of this. Look at verse 17. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Do you notice, it's not just hatred that John wants to warn us against, but neglect As Christians, we're called to be sensitive to each other's needs, to have a level of awareness and compassion of what's going on in people's lives, and to take inventory of what we have and be willing to share it with others in need. If we have a car, we'll give lifts to people when they need them. If someone's struggling financially, we'll reach into our pockets and be generous. If someone needs emotional support, we'll share something of our time We'll free up our diaries, meet with them, pray with them. That's part of what it means to lay our lives down. It doesn't have to be something dramatic and and once for all time. It's an ongoing sacrifice. That is what life in the church is to be. Let me add another thing here. And what I'm about to say is in danger of sounding self-serving, right? But bear with me, bear with me. This includes looking out for your leaders as well. Now, 
This isn't a cry for help, okay? I don't say this for my sake. I'm saying it for the sake of the many leaders who serve in this church. There are staff, there are elders, there are life group leaders, there are student leaders, youth group leaders. In fact, anyone you expect to be served by, they are not just your leaders, they are your brothers and sisters as well. And they are blessed when they're served by you. Some of us sometimes think that it's, it's not our position to help just because you know, we're young or we're inexperienced in the Christian faith or we don't really feel like we've got much to give. But we can. And leaders are always blessed when anyone wants to come alongside and serve them in some way. Is this something we can grow in? We serve each other in the church. But the problem is, if community is only something we consume when it's convenient, and if we have no space to serve others, John has a searching question. How can the love of God be in us? And it goes beyond platitudes. Look at verse 18. Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. It's not just about what we say. It's what we actually do. Why? Because Jesus has done that for us. He did not just simply talk about serving. He laid his life down, and we are all the better for it. We're blessed for it. We've been saved. And so we have the privilege of being like Christ to others in the church, and that is what we are called to. And then community will be not just a house, but a home. So with God's help, let's press into that. Final point, verses 19 to 24. How to gain confidence. Confidence. So one of the reasons I've said that John has written this letter is to give Christians assurance that they truly are God's people. How do we know that we belong to God? And there are various signs and evidence that points to the fact we are Jesus' people have confidence and he's and in these last few verses John talks more about how we can have this confidence and assurance the trouble is verse 19 to 20 are very difficult verses to actually interpret some have said that they're the hardest in the whole letter so thanks for that Pete giving me this passage Um, and if you read different translations of the Bible they will handle these verses in in different ways There are a couple of key issues. One is verse 19. So if you look at verse 19, we have the phrase, this is how we know. This is how we know. But the question is, what is the this referring to? Is it pointing forward to verse 20? In other words, this is how we know that we belong to the truth. So keep going. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts. And that seems to be what our version, the NIV, kind of leans towards. But it could also be pointing back to verse 18. So verse 18, let us not love with words of speech, but with actions and in truth. This is how we know that we belong to the truth. And for what it's worth, it seems to me that this, that pointing backwards is more likely. It would then link to verse 14. Look at verse 14. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. In other words, a sign that you are a true Christian is that you love your brothers and sisters. 
A second issue is the phrase in verse 19, set our hearts at rest. Set our hearts at rest. Now, many view these verses being about John trying to um, reassure Christians with sensitive consciences. The sort of Christians who stress about whether they're truly saved or not. And, And that is a real pastoral problem. And I think John has things to say on that matter. However, for him to move so quickly from talking about um, the need for Christians to love each other to then shift to, to that kind of introspective theme, it feels a bit of a gear shift. And the phrase, set our hearts at rest, actually has, has different translations. It's a translation of a word that is normally translated persuade. Persuade. In fact, most of the time it means persuade. So it's not so much that our hearts need to be reassured, it's that our hearts need to be persuaded. Now, one of the reasons I lean towards thinking of it as persuade um, is that there is a parallel Old Testament passage, Deuteronomy 15, um, which is coming up on the slide. If you can't read it, I'll read it for you. Um, The Lord says this, If anyone is poor among your fellow Israelites in any of the towns of the land that the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted towards them. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend them whatever they need. Be careful not to harbor this wicked thought. The seventh year, the year for cancelling debts, is near, so that you do not show ill will towards the needy among your fellow Israelites and give them nothing. They may then appeal to the Lord against you, and you will be guilty of sin. Now, in this passage, Moses talks about the need for, us to mater- for the people of Israel to materially help their brothers and sisters in, in the community. And it also talks about the heart, but in particular, the danger of being hard-hearted, being stingy, not being willing to give of your own resources to others. There was this uh, custom where every seven years, debts would be cancelled. And so if it was the sixth year and someone comes up to you and says, can I lend 500 quid? You'd be tempted to think, "Uh, maybe not, maybe not, because I'm probably not going to get that back, am I? And the law says you cannot think like that because if you do, you are sinning against your brother or sister. Now, if that is the background to one John... I think that would shed a lot of light on what he's trying to say here. And therefore, the logic of verses 19 to 20 will go like this. Evidence of being one of God's children is that you love your brothers and sisters in the church and you help them when they're in need. Therefore, if you become aware that your heart has been hardened towards others and you have been stingy, that is, if it condemns you, then you need to be persuaded to change. Now, this isn't describing Christians who are growing in love but are aware of their failures. All of us could be better at serving each other. None of us do this perfectly. But if you detect a consistently hard heart, if as a matter of habit you close yourself off to serving other Christians in your church, if there's a pattern of neglect, then you need to be persuaded to change. And this is how you do it. You realize that God is greater than your heart. Now, to one degree, that's actually challenging. 
Because the logic could be that if you're grasping that you're sinful in this area, God knows more than you how much sin is in your heart because he knows everything, as the verse says. And that is an encouragement to change. But by implication, it's also encouraging. God is more merciful to us than we are to others. He is greater than our hearts. And he is also able to change our hearts if we find and identify neglect in them. And so basically, John is telling us that if we detect a kind of inner Smeagol, you know, from Lord of the Rings, who likes to hold on to things, then we need to do something about it. We need to be persuaded. And we persuade our hearts by remembering God's standards and coming to him for help. Are you hard-hearted towards other Christians? Do you neglect them because of the patterns in your life and heart? If that is true, please do not ignore that conviction. Come to the Lord and do something about it. Now, some of you may have heard some of what we've covered today may feel quite sharp. But John doesn't want us to feel despair. As we've seen already in chapter 1, any sin that we have can be brought to the Lord, and if we confess it, he is faithful and just to forgive us. What is it the passage says at the end? The commands that God gives us are to believe in his son, Jesus Christ. If we come in repentance and belief and humbly ask for change, he will give us the power to change by his Holy Spirit that's in us. John doesn't want us to feel despair. And so if you're the sort of person who is self-analytical, introspective, and worries about whether you are truly one of God's people, what I would say is pray about it, but speak to one of your friends in the church who knows you, who can often see the growth in your heart better than you can. That will be an encouragement to you. But at the same time, there is a danger that there are people who regularly turn up for church, who are involved in the Christian community, but are either hateful or neglectful, and there is little to no evidence that they use their own resources to serve others. If that is the case, then now is a good time to come to the Lord in repentance and receive forgiveness. Just think, the Lord Jesus gave his life for people who are stingy. He gave his life so that people who are even like Cain could receive forgiveness if they come to him in repentance. We can be changed. And just very quickly, from verse 21 onwards, we see the confidence that comes as we grow in this area. It gives us confidence When we pray, we get answered prayers because we are relating to God rightly. Again, we don't become children of God by doing good. But as we seek to live in obedience to him and, and as we live rightly, we will experience a closer sense of communion. And yes, answered prayers. It is a blessing to walk humbly with God and to live the way he calls us to. 
And if we do that as a church, we will be that one step closer to being the homely community we want to be. We're already going there. There's a lot of fruit and growth. But we can push forward, and by God's help, we can do so. So let's pray for it, shall we? Father in heaven, these are strong words. And so I pray, Lord God, that in our hearts, where there is hate, we would repent of it and ask for your forgiveness. Where we've been consumers, we ask for your forgiveness and repent. Where we've been neglectful of others in our church, in our life groups, in our student groups, in our other groups, that you'd forgive us. Lord, we need your mercy. And yet, Father, we thank you that you sent us your son, life itself, to give his life so that we may be forgiven and we may become increasingly like you. Lord, for those of us who feel pinched by what's been said today, may we not run off just angry and frustrated or despairing. Lord, may we come humbly before you, receive your forgiveness, and receive the joy and confidence that comes by communing with you. We pray for your mercy in Jesus' name. Amen.